Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Now, how far can the transformative effect of music take us? Out of this world? Today, we'll be trying to answer that question as we'll be exploring how one composer has looked far beyond the bounds of our own world for symphonic inspiration. Composer Amanda Lee Falkenberg's new work, The Moon Symphony, dramatises the past, present and future moon explorations. And the soundtrack has been created not just for the large white orb that hangs above this planet. The symphony is for seven moons in total, our own just one of a selection that also includes some of the moons of Saturn, Uranus and Jupiter. Pack your moon boots. We're taking one small step for Amanda, one giant leap for Monocle on Culture. Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the programme today. We find you in an exciting time. You're over in the UK because you're recording... Well, you're in the midst of moons, right? How many moons are we in the midst of, by the way? Seven. Okay. Lucky seven. (laughs) (laughs) And which moons are we talking about? Because we're used to kind of like, you know, walking outside the house, looking up into the night sky on a beautiful summer's evening at the moment, even here in the UK. It's gorgeous. Don't don't judge us. (laughs) I'm looking up at our one, but which are the seven moons that you have written this this sort of rolling symphony about? Okay, well, we'll get to our one later, but okay. I think I need to have you suit up in a spacesuit and come travelling with me beyond the asteroid belt. Okay. Um, and this is why this is so inspirational for me to have discovered these moons because there hasn't been a lot of research about them. So, yes, we are looking at moons of the outer solar system And we've got a couple of moons from Jupiter and, of course, Enceladus, and one moon, Miranda, from Uranus. There's a news headline about that at the moment. NASA just approved another flagship mission to go back to Uranus. It's only ever been visited once by the Voyager 2 Mm -hmm. spacecraft. So, of course, all us moon junkies were very happy about that. (laughs) Get to go and visit Miranda again. Love a moon junkie. Yeah. Glad to be meeting one, finally. (laughs) And then um, the seventh moon is our moon, and there's a very special story associated with that. So just a little synopsis, if you like. The first six moons basically deal with the scientific data brought back from space probes to tell the stories of these fascinating worlds. And the seventh moon is about the emotional data being brought back through the hearts of astronauts. And so that's pretty much the story of the Moon Symphony. I love that. I love that the data goes two ways, that you can read it two ways or that it's transferred through two kind of separate vessels. One's noughts and ones, I suppose, and one is the sort of slightly inexplicable kind of that emotional journey that people go on when they're they're reading that data. Also, I suppose, if they're blasted out into space and they get to see the Earth from another point of view, I suppose. Exactly. Anyway, we should say that the event is, uh, the, the recording of this, at two august recording studios. One is Abbey Road, let's face it, and St Luke's. We really have the best of both worlds and we have literally the dream team associated with this recording and producing this work that's been like five years in the making. Like, so yeah. There's a lot of pinch me moments, uh, as you could imagine, but yeah, it's been quite a large scope to kind of pull together a project of this size with the scientists and 
and musicians, and of course, landing world famous Marin Olsop conducting our Moon's Symphony is just dreamy. It's a clean sweep, Amanda. It's a clean sweep. And this is the London Symphony Orchestra. That <laughs> yes, you're it doing is. This with. As a composer, I feel like you know, you know, the writers on set of a movie, and it's like, ah, oh, let's just change that bit. It doesn't seem to be working in actuality. I don't mean to, to sound weird by, when I say this, but how much are you a bystander, and how much are you in the midst of it? You've obviously got your conductor, you've got your wonderful orchestra and choir. How much of it do you? Can you change? Do you want to change? Is that something... Are you a tinkerer in the studio? Oh, I love this question because <sighs> I guess the personality that I am, I, I'm sort of never the 11th hour girl. I have everything organised as okay. much as I can in advance and so much so that back in 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, it seemed like Marin Alsop's orchestra was the only one still functioning. So I flew to Vienna to be with her to road test at least the orchestral music for the yeah. Moon Symphony. So Rob, I um, spent three hours with them, just literally just like kind of just pacing ourselves through the music to make sure that everything was readable and workable. And there was just one note that was missing and it was a hidden F sharp in the violas and that was it. during COVID, this is an interesting story, I saw an opportunity to look at how I could road test the, the choir. And so I contacted Ben Parry, who's London Voices, yeah. and hired 12 musician singers through lockdown. They all sang their part in their individual studios, sent them to us in Dubai, and we pulled them all together. And we've got the COVID choir, I call it right now, <laughs> <laughs> sitting in on the um, the wow. orchestral simulated version that you're hearing on the YouTube. So it, that, so, so I, I guess what I'm saying here is that the Abbey Road studio session is going to get ready for a bit of a tissue box next to me because to hear 60 voices mm. and in a rich ensemble like that, having them sung individually in their own studios, you will never get that ensemble feel. So that's going to be cherry on top of the cake. Well, yeah, no, a few, nothing's as moving as the human voice en masse, right? It's the most amazing thing. So that's going to be feel exceptionally real. Right? You're going to get whiplash off of that kind of thing. That's going to be amazing. <laughs> Nought to 60 in three seconds kind of thing. Exactly. It's going to be amazing. It's a phenomenal thing. I know that you work, I've seen some, I've done some YouTube research, Amanda, yeah. obviously. Uh, well done. But I've seen you in your studio in Dubai, your home studio in Dubai, I suppose. There are a million miles between, you know, rising notes on a page and practicing it and seeing this thing come to life. I mean, even in terms of the choir and having them record all their own separate bits and then presumably synthesising them together to make them sound choral rather than soloists, even something like that, how do you transpose something that it seems very abstract to something that becomes totally real? Is it simply having your confidence in your ability to write the music? Is it the confidence in the sort of sweep of the story of the music? What is it that, that allows those notes to kind of live and breathe when you suddenly Gosh. step into St Luke's or, or Abbey Road? It is that is a beautiful question. Oh, I mean, I could talk hours about that. And I think there's a couple of words that come to mind. It is a process. It absolutely is. And I think one thing I want to comment on is, you know, as an artist, you know, we, we certainly have a, a certain type of personality, which is, 
very much in our minds and our imagination for so much of the time, but also just such a huge level of trust and confidence and trust in not so much confidence in your creative abilities and just knowing that there's going to be a solution and an answer. And that's all the excitement about being a creative artist is looking for those solutions and exploring. And um, I mean, I think John Williams has a beautiful way of commenting about his creative process and this statement that he's used when he's crafting the music. And, and at what point do you say, that movement is done, you know, it's our time to go on to, you know, Titan or something. And what it had become for me was very much an intuitive driven exercise. But I like like the way John Williams has kind of packaged it and he would say for instance um, he was with the reporter and they was talking about the Indiana Jones theme you know the famous theme yeah. and how you know it just seems like it just happened overnight and he said he tinkered away at that for days and days and days and days until it sounded inevitable Isn't that just beautiful? Yeah. And I'm just and like, it sounds like the, the bull rolling down the gully <laughs> exactly. at him, right? <laughs> and I just, I just love the way he he poetically positioned that because yeah. that is truly what I felt when I would just say, you know, confirm that a movement was done. It's a feeling thing, you know. It's an emotional thing. It's not just an uh, like an intellectual thing. I have to feel like, oh. Yes, mm. everything is said. I, I'm time to just put it to bed and move on to the next moon. Because <laughs> it's so. it's tough, isn't it? And I love ask, asking artists of any stripe, especially kind of painters. I think actually, when one extra brush m- might sort of spoil something that was you thought was imperfect, but maybe it was right because it was. Or a novelist who wants to have another tinker. A lot of people say that it's always it's nothing until the audience interact with it. I suppose, but it's really interesting that I guess it's almost that thing where you you know something's finished when you can look at it almost as if someone else has done it. And you just like it, like it's a work of art, it's a thing, it's a symphony, it's a song, it's an amazing thing. I wonder if, is it the case, thinking about John Williams and those wonderful, memorable, necessarily so, I suppose, Mm. I suppose they've come with all those big movies as well, Mm. those inevitable melodies from those films, whether whether those super strong melodies are easier or less easy to come up with. What about for you, Amanda? You know, those, those ones where, which is, oh, this is the real, this is almost the, this is the click, click, this is the pop song bit of it. This is the pure melody mm. part of this. Mm. Is that harder or easier to come up with? Because <laughs> it feels, for the audience, it feels like it must be the easiest thing because you plucked it out of thin air. It's like the melody to I want to hold your hand. <laughs> feels like it should, you've plucked it out of the ether. Yes. You're writing this stuff. Is it? Or is it hours of teeth grinding lunacy? <laughs> well, it's, again, just being so comfortable as a creative artist, being in the imagination, in that world for so long. But I think when I used the word confidence before with you, mm. I want to back trace that to a process that I employ, which is called my incubation period. Mm-hmm. And it is a period of research. And so I'm very old school. Like Before I would actually begin any of these moons, I would duly do my research, not only consulting with scientists, but also, you know, there's so much you can glean from internets and YouTubes and all that sort of stuff. And mm. I would be there with pencil and paper and books and literally write for months or as much material as I could find about this moon. Now, that's when the confidence starts sort of kind of coming in and around you. Now, I won't le- I will not go into my studio and write a scrap of music during that point at all. It's just pure pure research and science. Mm-hmm. As a film composer, you know, I would not write any music for a script I was about to write music for until I had read the script, until I'd percolated all the nuances of that 
And then I would put the script aside and then go into the studio and then that would have my undivided attention. So that is how I've worked through all these moons. And then interestingly, so I would go in then create the music, which I just loved because then I would sort of look at, I'd sort of put the science to the side, create the music, the story basically driven by emotion. I'll talk about that a little bit more. Mm. And um, then after the music was done, it was then the poetry. So I'd have to look at that science and nitty gritty science and then go and package it in a way that was, you know, for theatre in a theatrical lens as opposed to a science. I mean, you're not going to have libretto that's a bit too sciencey. So I had to kind of, and that was fun. Well, they've done I Nixon really... in China. They can do. <laughs> True. They can do fixing a Ford Cortina or <laughs> oh, the that... love life of the Saturn satellite. Yeah, yeah. but it's interesting because when I first stumbled across these moons, Rob, I mean, I didn't set out to have scientists and astronauts. It, it clearly was just these. It was this YouTube link that said ten of the weirdest moons of our solar system and. I was like, Ten of the weirdest. Weirdest moons. And okay. I was almost shaking, going, oh, my God, these moons need music. They need emotion. Yeah. And that was it. That was my project. That's how it started. Okay. So simple. The elephant in the room here is the moons themselves, which we've sort of talked about and we sort of haven't. But actually, the elephant in the room is the planets. I suppose they've been done, Holst, Tick. So that's been done. So why the moons? Because they are the kind of, we kind of think of them slightly as the bridesmaid, don't we, of of the planetary world. So you're kind of singing the unsung songs, the majesty of the universe in a way, are you? Or what's the moon fascination? Okay. Why are you a moon junkie, Amanda? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's all got to do with the new Goldilocks zone. And this <laughs> is... I woke up and I thought I was doing an interview. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, up until like, we talked about those Voyager missions yeah. and those asteroids started going beyond the asteroid belt... They've discovered a new Goldilocks zone in the outer solar system. And what this means is habitable worlds that could exist beyond the traditional model of Goldilocks, which is favoured around planet Earth, of course. And so now they started seeing, you know, volcanoes erupting on a moon called Io of Jupiter. Now, this was compelling information to scientists because they realised that these worlds are dynamic and active and weren't solar-driven. There was another process by Mm. which it was, you know, making these worlds alive and functioning in this way. They just thought they were like dead ice balls, but they weren't. And so what is so compelling is that, for instance, the second movement, which is Moon Europa, NASA is sending a flagship spacecraft in 2023 because... There's an ocean that's two and a half times as large as Earth's ocean. And they believe the host it could have the right conditions to host microbial life. See, that's great, isn't it? That's what that's <laughs> exactly. who needs an opera. The microbes. Exactly. You don't hear enough. That's actually a good idea. Isn't it good? Right? <laughs> that's a really a microbial, good idea. microbial wouldn't that be great? Let's pitch it to Pixar. Okay. I'm the writer. <laughs> You're the composer. 50-50. It's on tape. It. So it's legal now. It's legal. <laughs> <laughs> but the moons are, I use that phrase of bridesmaid, 
I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, they are the kind of we think of we love our moon. It's imbued with mystical quality, obviously astrological as much as astronomical kind of qualities, you know, you know, belief systems as much as raw science, science as well. But what about the other ones? It, do we need to kind of visit it? Do we need to kind of know about the personalities of these places? How do you get under the skin, under the dust of those moons to kind of be able to tell their stories, to be able to personify them in music? Because mm. that's the thing. It's you are, I suppose you are like any composer. I suppose you're, you need to get under the surface of the story. You need to get under the surface of your kind of characters, for want of a better word, for these moons. That's all done at the research point, is it? Is that the kind of thing of kind of going, right, this moon is a little bit like this. This is, how, this is what they're going to sound like. This is how they're, they're going to be light on their feet and they're going to be, they're going to be piccolos and, yeah. and, you know, desk count recorders or something. And this, this is the big, this is Bluto. This is, this is the blue beard. This is going to be bassoons and tubers or whatever. <laughs> how does it work? Well, for this me... This is why I'm not a good, this is why I'd be a terrible composer. Oh, I love imagine it. How, imagine not how binary all. and basic my uh, composition No, is. it's beautiful. It's exactly, you know, how our minds... Like, for me, I just love to sort of like draw connections and patterns and, and personality was a great word and the characteristics. Mm. And so, for instance, Moon Europa is the second moon featured in the symphony, but that was the first moon that I actually composed for. And then I sort of jiggle things around a little bit after. But a lot of this stuff, again, is just so intuitive. And sometimes I don't even know why I'm doing it. And yet yeah. I trust the process. And it's only once I'd sort of looked back and I'm like, oh, my goodness, all this makes sense now that that is that and that's why that's there and that led me to this. And so I think that's where just we have to be su there's such a huge element of trust in the process and not engage too much with the intellectual mind with all of this because otherwise, you know, it just clouds that alchemy of what it means to be a composer and put these stories and put it with music and, and make something compelling out of it and uh, I love how you're referencing like this film composers and, and um, directors and, and so forth because that is exactly what I felt like I felt mm. like I was the director of this film these moons were my leading actors I was writing their script based with the scientists information the characteristics and so I just honestly felt I had the best of every single world in this and you know and one thing I'd keep often I say this so much, is just how privileged I have felt with this idea. Like I was, one of the first things I did was Google, had anyone written a moon symphony? I'm like, whoa, no one hasn't. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Here's my chance, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was always just always positioned on, wow, you know, this what a privilege to have this idea and let's go and see how far we can take this. Yeah, well, pretty far it seems. I mean, we're, we're in the midst of it. It's exciting stuff. What happens when you, you, you get all this data and I know that you've done events with and spoken deep with and probably made friends with scientists and astronauts and all the rest of it. When they hear the music, what's largely their reaction? I mean, obviously, you're buddies, so they obviously like it. <laughs> that we've become but, buddies. <laughs> but, like, is it how it's such different kind of, I guess it's such different mindset. As we said at the beginning of the interview, this kind of, there is scientific data and there's sort of emotional data that comes from our interactions with the knowledge of this science, with even getting out there in space and sort of seeing the Earth from a different point of view or seeing these moons up close or knowing what the data really means. But what about when it's that or some of, the, some of that meaning is transposed into music? What do they say? What adjectives do, the, do these experts use to describe the music? You know, when you're hanging out with them, what are they saying about about the music you've composed, about the stuff that they know so much about? I mean, I think this is why this project... And don't is... say loud. 
Amanda. <laughs> Speak loud, actually, Amanda. <laughs> um, I think that's why this project, I mean, I, another thing I say is just the layers of inspiration that have gone into this because I've looked at what they're doing and their brilliance of minds and the brilliance of missions and engineers and I'm like, how can I amplify this incredible stuff these guys are doing? What can? How can I be of service, creative service, to really let everyone, more people know about these moons, music, you know, using the manipulated forces of of the emotional capabilities of music because I just, again, I saw an opportunity. I'm like, wow, this, because I love moons, obviously. There's that moon junkie thing. And I'm like, well, what about if I put music to these worlds and their stories so that other people, more people could enjoy them? And so that's when I started, you know, contacting these NASA scientists and telling them about my project and had a lovely team, incredible team that I've consulted with. And they would help me understand some of the characteristics. So when it did come to actually then giving them the poetry, okay, I finished the poetry, guys. How does this look? You know, (laughs) the music how does this sound you know to have their reaction which is Amanda I have goosebumps all over me and I've just read your poetry sort of thing yeah and then you know so I think Rob what's so exciting about this weekend is that there's a bunch of scientists that are coming over from America and astronaut Nicole Stott who I consulted with so I'm literally having them on stage with me in front of the London Symphony Orchestra because I want to see their reactions (laughs) and it's almost like when Marin turns to us Amanda are you happy with that tag I feel like going to the scientists are you happy with your music you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with yeah. your moon's music. And you're never really sure when you set out as a composer, when you write music, you, you're never sure it's going to resonate with people. You hope it will. But then to get these comments back from scientists, and I mean, one comment that Dr. Linda Spilker, who I consulted with for Enceladus, and one thing that she says is that Amanda has like custom designed the music for these moons and how emotionally, you know, people, I, I think that word emotion comes through a lot from mm. the scientists, you know, and the human experience about being a scientist and then then they hear the music, it just sort of makes them sort of, I don't know, it just sort of ties a beautiful circle around it all for yeah. them. And I suppose there's that thing when you're all on stage together, that's an amazing thing. That really is the sort of, that's what the marriage of art and science looks like in, in people, right? So that's that's a wonderful moment. But I guess, you know, for scientists who it's not... It's not, their jo- it's not their job to express themselves. It's their job to know stuff and impart that knowledge if they're public-facing scientists in a digestible way in order to make differences and, you know, parcel budgets up, let's face it, right? For <laughs> things like NASA, how do you get? How do, how do they decide which moon to fly to and which projects to do as opposed to other ones or the rest of it? Because that's, that's tough stuff. But for them, I suppose, their, their sense of wonderment is kind of parceled up in that as well. I mean, you know, they know lots of stuff, but they don't kind of know maybe how to express it in such a way. And you don't know everything, but mm. you're, you're able to express the stuff that you know in a way that kind of can meet them. It's a, it's a, it's a really lovely thing. I, and we've got to know, I, there's a few more things I want to ask you, but I kind of want to go back to, I want to go back to where you grew up, actually, and you're and learning the piano. You must have had a great teacher. Yeah, I, I've had, I mean... I'm from Australia, obviously. And where are you from? Are you from the city? Are you from, are you from the Barossa sticks? Barossa Valley. 
Okay. So it's, you've read my mind because when I Because I'm thinking you're looking up. Yes, you're absolutely right. And you stars. You see all the stars. Absolutely. It's so I, that's, but I think that and nature, just being exposed to beautiful vineyards, you know, mm. and the autumn. I miss autumn. We don't have an autumn in Dubai. Um, but the changing <laughs> colours and the textures of the landscape. I mean, I, I only started composing in my 20s. So, but I was those first. Oh, me too, Amanda, yeah. <laughs> but, you know. So, Laggards. <laughs> But um, those first two decades, I was so driven by learning my craft and just becoming the best pianist Mm. and, you know, understanding all the nuances of music that I could academically. Then all of a sudden in my 20s, I'm like, wow, maybe I can try and write this stuff myself. And so my upbringing was definitely, you know, the wild Australian free-spirited bush that we're famous for. And I think that does feed in well to, you know, artists because... uh, that is the imagination to be free and wild and you know and yeah, roaming. And being comfortable with big open spaces and fr- sort of fr- horizons that are very that are thousands of miles away from you. These are things that aren't. It's not like where I'm from. I mean, I'm from the country, and you look up and you see lovely stars and the rest of it. But yeah. you know that there's there's <laughs> there's a border, sort of forty miles away, or this way, that way, the other way. It's a very different mindset, and I mean that really. I mean, mm. It's not a glib. It sounds a bit glib, but it's a real thing, right? Mm. Having that that sort of lack of doubt about how far you can go or whatever, yeah. or doubt about how far you can go is kind of an amazing thing. And what music were you listening to when you were growing up? Were you listening to the sort of music that you're making now? Was it as expansive? Was it as, as, as sort of ambitious as that? Or were you just like every other kid listening to, you know, whatever was the top 40 on the radio? Both. Okay. Actually. Yeah. And a fun fact is that my husband and I have actually released a chill out album and Arabian influence. So I've richly grew up with both worlds. But I'd mm. have to say that mostly, in fact, we went to a Lang Lang concert um, a couple of years ago and he was playing this beautiful Chopin on the piano. And I turned to my friend, I said, That's my vacuum cleaning music. That mum would, my mother would play like Chopin waltzes as we're doing the house cleaning on Saturday mornings. <laughs> and I, That's my vacuum cleaning so you have, music. You have mixed memories <laughs> exactly. of Chopin. Poor old Chopin. <laughs> Very <laughs> known. <laughs> I know. Right? Um, but I mean, we grew up on a staple of like Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera, and right. I'd be going to bed at night with my like Walkman, my Discman, whatever it was back yeah, then, yeah. and just live, listening to the richness of those, you know, the operatic voice. And it's always big been big stuff, big stuff. Yeah. And you know, this yeah. is another thing I wanted to share with you because um, we didn't have access to symphony orchestras in the Brossa Valley. If we did want to go, it would be the Adelaide Symphony, and my piano teacher would drive me down and we'd go to a concert and drive back. And we used to love that journey back home because we'd get to like review that experience and chat Mm. very philosophically about it. It was wonderful. But what um, my auntie was a musician, she lent me her university books and they were sort of in black and white, but there was one particular picture that I just couldn't stop staring at. And it was a picture of a black and white, like glossy photo of a symphony orchestra. And for some reason that was be just after I finished my homework, I just get out this book and just stare Hmm. at this ensemble just taking their bow and I don't know it's the strangest thing and I just I just don't know why I was so drawn and compelled to it but I would just stare and stare and stare and and now I guess I know why (laughs) yeah it's an amazing thing I mean that is such a potent vehicle for the transmission of emotion the symphony orchestra there's such formality in the dress such formality in the what the instruments can do but then it's how you do it and and such formality of these are the notes on the page they might have been written 50 years ago 20 years ago mm. or 500 years ago but it's what you do within those strictures that is the great artistry isn't it I mean that's 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 wonderful I interviewed a few years ago on this program um, Esther Pekka Salonen yes. the conductor and tried to get into the woods of kind of like how he 
how he tests out orchestras and how they, you know, at the beginning it's a bit of a speed dating thing. You know, yeah. how do you, mm. how do they behave when you do the, da, da, da. and he was phenomenal on that and about, yeah, about the relationship with that orchestra and about the sort of fierce power of it that mm. makes it put sort of Led Zeppelin to shame, right? It's an amazing, yeah. it's kind of an amazing thing. I mean, this is what you've got at your fingertips at St. Luke's and at Abbey Road. It's, it's an amazing thing and a sobering thing and an emotional thing. And it's your stuff that they're, your stuff that they're they're blasting out. So, what relationship does this have to? You mentioned John Williams at the top of the interview, Amanda. What relationship does does this world have to to film soundtrack world? Because I feel like a way into it, I, I'd have thought if you're a c- composer, indeed a writer with writer's block, you kind of go, well, "What is that? How will people? What what do people think this is?" So this is independent, wonderful symphonic music, but there is a sense of soundtrackery to what it's mm. to the stuff that there's stuff out there that exists, and this is that this is its theme tune to, to yeah. a certain extent. Is that do it? I don't want to do it down by saying that, but does I, that? Do you think of it in that <laughs> world somehow? I mean, you know what I mean? It, yeah. it's the soundtrack to an un, an as yet untold story. I just I was just sitting here thinking, gosh, you just ask the most brilliant questions, and so I'm really just enjoying <laughs> um, the content here. Come back next and, week, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> and you just, you, um, it's like you're mind reading me. But I, and I think that's the thing that I loved about this project is that because up until then, I mean, you are bound by the script and the scene and you have to, you know, vo- you, you have to mix your music so that you're not upstaging mm-hmm. the, the voiceovers and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's why this this particular project has felt such a privilege and, and such a nourishing exercise because I haven't been bound by the parameters of what a film score would is dictated by the music is dictated by so I've had just so much joy by sort of stepping out of that particular role and just cut blanche you've got a galaxy here to yeah. explore so that has been such a rich rich musical experience because of those things I just discussed. The the parameters aren't there and so the world is your oyster. In fact, it's funny, going back to John Williams again, you know, because obviously he's spent all his life with films and occasionally he would do, you know, an abstract piece and he would say it's actually almost harder to then come up with the ideas and, you know, creative inspiration and his go-to is what do you love about life? Like what inspires you about life? And that's got, that got me going on my piano concerto, which is moons. I love moons. So yeah. the piano concerto was what led me to this moon symphony project. You know, you just do what you love, follow the joy. And so I think that was, it was just so compelling to just have this raw project that wasn't attached to a film, but yet it was a film in my head and heart. And, and I was, like I said, writing the scripts and I was the director and composer and, and just trying to figure all this out. And wow, talk about Kid in a Candy Store. <laughs> you know? <laughs> She's a Kid in a Candy Store. She's just one wonderful woman in the galaxy. Amanda Lee Falkenberg, thank you so much for talking us through the many, many moons. Um, And thanks for just picking seven um, for us to talk about um, today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Amazing. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Amanda Lee Falkenberg. Pick up the current July-August issue of Monocle magazine. It's on newsstands now, in which we take a look at the world of small cinemas that offer their own unique ways of watching a movie. And don't worry, they're all definitely Earthside. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. 